You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio Live for this Friday night edition of the broadcast here on Republic Broadcasting at republicbroadcasting.org. As always, I'm your host and guide for the next hour of radio transmission, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, broadcasting to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already noon on Saturday. And tonight we have an absolute jam-packed transmission for you. I have assembled together a number of different listener suggestions for stories to cover on the program. So we're going to take a spin around the world with all of the latest news and uh, headlines that are making the headlines around the world right now. Uh, Just a ton of information to get through today. And also we'll have uh, wide open phone lines if you want to call in with anything that's on your mind, 1-800-313-9443. But since we do have so much information to get to today, why don't we get straight into it? And something that is breaking news right now, that is, uh, well, news here in Japan, big news here in Japan, is the latest earthquake that has just hit off the northeast coast of Japan yet again. And in a sad reminder of the terrible earthquake and tragedy that struck on March 11th, 2011, we had a 7.3 earthquake hitting off the east northeast coast of Japan last night, about 5.18 p.m. local time, with its epicenter just uh, 10 kilometers beneath the seabed and just off the coast of Miyagi Prefecture. So it is in a very similar location to the earthquake that struck last year, not quite as devastating, and there was a uh, tsunami that apparently did hit, but it was not a uh, as anything near the destruction of last year's tsunami, obviously. And once again, I find myself here hundreds of miles away uh, learning about this, like most everyone else, uh, via the internet, of course, not feeling anything of that effect over here literally hundreds and hundreds of miles away from that epicenter, but it is nevertheless a grim warning of uh, of what can happen at any time with a repeat of the type of devastation that we saw last year. And unfortunately, as people who have been following the Fukushima situation know, the Fukushima Daiichi Reactor 4 is a con- ongoing concern as it continues to sink unevenly into the ground there and threatens to collapse with all of its spent fuel in its uh, spent fuel pool that is basically sitting there holding the world in nuclear crisis, uh, nuclear hostage. So if that uh, if that building does collapse, uh, well, the ramifications will be pretty huge for everyone in the Northern Hemisphere and really everyone across the globe. Uh, the latest of the reports that I can find right now is that Fukushima Daiichi has not been affected. There has been no effect that TEPCO is reporting at this point at any rate. Of course, I'll be keeping my eye on the newswires for any further updates. But we can turn to FukushimaUpdate.com for a story from India today that basically says, Strong earthquake hits Japan, Fukushima plants safe. It just gives some of the details of the earthquake and then says that uh, the warning said that the tsunami could be as high as two meters. NHK Television, the national broadcaster here in Japan, broke off regular programming to warn that a strong quake was due to hit shortly before the earthquake struck. And afterward, the announcer repeatedly urged all near the coast to flee to higher ground. 
And so far, as I say, no reports of widespread damage or anything approaching the damage of last year. But we are keeping our eye on the Fukushima situation. And although there is no reports yet of any damage at Fukushima Daiichi, there is a report of uh, some damage at Fukushima Daini. That's Fukushima, the second um, Fukushima plant. And uh, this comes from XSKF, which is a great resource for translating Japanese articles into English. He writes uh, an update on the magnitude 7.3 earthquake. Uh, it looks something may have happened at Fukushima 2 nuclear power plant. According to TEPCO, there was a small rise in pressure in the reactor bu- building, which is to be kept at a negative pressure to prevent radioactive contamination from spreading into the environment. And he goes on to quote a Gigi Tsushin article on the quake and translate it into English. So I will put the link in the show notes. All of that is up at fukushimaupdate.com right now. So that will be the place to go for any further updates that I can find on this. And of course, if you have any further information on what's happening there at the plant that you don't see me posting about, please let me know through the contact form either on Fukushima Update or on CorbettReport.com. Let's take a short break. We'll be back with more news right after this. If you're looking for a change, you might try another place. Cause the candidates you're looking at are basically the same. There's one on the left and one on the right. Only difference the direction they are facing when they lie. It's a All right, friend, welcome back to the program. Once again, this is James Corbett of Corbett.com in the exceptionally sunny climes of Eastern Japan. So to all of you just tuning in tonight, you are listening to Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we are going over the latest news from around the world, including a number of stories that have been sent in this week by various listeners around the world who have contacted me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Once again, I do, of course, appreciate all of the news and information and tips and suggestions that come in through that contact form. And as usual, I'm sure you know the drill by now, I don't have time to get back to each and every person individually or to carry on voluminous correspondence, but I do try to take a look at what comes in and I do try to uh, to put that into account. So let's go through some of the stories that people have sent in from around the world that have caught people's attention and caught mine as well, I must admit. For example, uh, we can look at a story from IEEE, which is at IEEE.org. And off the top of my head, I don't remember what the IEEE stands for, but uh, you can look into that for yourself. And it is a good place to go for information on the transhuman agenda and various aspects thereof. It is uh, very much at the forefront of that type of technology. So it's always got some interesting stories on there. And I've gotten quite a few interesting drone stories from that site over the years. And just a couple of hours ago, a user, a、uh, listener named Eric wrote in to suggest this story. It's AR drone that infects other drones with virus wins drone games. And long story short, this is talking about a, a contest that was held at the Groupon offices that was sponsored by Groupon and Windows Azure and Nodecopter and others. And basically the idea was to try to hack various drones in various interesting ways. And,、uh, the winner is actually someone who is able to infect a drone with a virus that would itself infect other drones with viruses. So basically starting a type of Trojan for, for drones. And this raises the level of drone hacking to a whole new level, I suppose. And for people who have been paying attention and people who listened to one of my early episodes of this radio broadcast,、uh, where we went over the possibility of a drone hack being the next false flag, I think you'll understand the significance 
significance of this. And of course, recently we've seen yet another U.S. drone apparently being hacked by Iran. And uh, there seems to be various levels of PSYOP going on there. I think I'll have to uh, do a more in-depth report on that in the future. But I think that there's definitely a reason why U.S. drones keep ending up hacked in Iran. And it certainly is the type of thing that can be a trigger incident for justifying that strike on Iran if and when they decide to drop that particular hammer. But moving right along, as I say tonight, we've got a blistering pace to, as we have a lot of uh, stories to cover. But once again, if you are interested, you can phone in 1-800-313-9443 with any stories that are on your mind tonight. But let's move on to the next uh, next subject entirely. We're going to take a look at the world of food and health and environment. And this comes from a, a great blog called The Queen's Table. It's actually a, a listener out there has gotten in touch with me to to tell me about her blog where she's talking about food and health and uh, GMO info and cancer prevention and all sorts of other other issues like that. So I hope people will go there to check out this blog. And she recently had a very interesting post called Dr. Oz Calls My Family Elitist, talking about the latest meme that's being put out there right now to try to support the agra-industrial complex by which big agra is supposed to be uh, just taken for granted that all of our food is supposed to come from just a handful of corp- well-connected corporations. I mean, why wouldn't you want that? And apparently the latest uh, meme that's being uh, floated out there right now to see if it'll catch on with the public is that if you care about what you're eating and you don't want to eat big mass-produced agri-industrial chemical-laden garbage, then you are an elitist and uh, you are anti-democratic. That's actually a term that's apparently being used by Dr. Mehmet Oz, who I know very little about, but I understand he's quite popular in the United States these days. So if you are a uh, someone who, who watches or listens to Dr. Oz or reads his articles, well, um, apparently now he's calling you a food snob and an elitist and anti-democratic, which is only an insult if you think it's an insult, if you get my meaning there. But, uh, but apparently you are being called all of this now if you actually care what you're eating and actually want non- processed organic foods. Apparently now this is something that uh, people are supposed to deride in the same way we're supposed to deride anyone who, who actually prepares for, for any type of uh, cataclysm or, or, or even just a natural disaster or whatever. Oh, those are crazy preppers. Let's make fun of them. Well, now I guess uh, food snobs and elitists are the only people who care about the quality of the food that they're eating and care about feeding their family with, uh, with foods that won't poison them. Well, uh, I won't attempt to do justice to this entire article. It's a very, very lengthy article, but there's a lot of great points in there. So I will just point people to the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com so you can go and read this entire post for yourself. Once again, it's called Dr. Oz Calls My Family Elitist. But I do want to draw your attention all the way down at the bottom of this very lengthy article to a very interesting infographic that I think puts things into a just plain black and white, very clearly, very succinctly. It is a Venn diagram of the two circles, one of federal government and one of Monsanto, and it shows how the overlap between various high-ranking government officials and high-ranking Monsanto officials is 
extremely, extremely uh, close. And you can go through. You have U.S. Congressman Toby Moffett, who also happens to be a Monsanto consultant. You have U.S. Senator Dennis DiConcini, who also happens to be a Monsanto legal counsel. You have the Deputy Director of the FDA, Margaret Miller, who also happens to be a chemical lab supervisor at Monsanto, etc., etc. I'm sure that these are positions that were held at different times, but it just goes to show that Monsanto and the federal government are basically one and the same. And this is something that is cause for concern, and it does not make you an elitist who has to be shunned from good company because you actually care about issues like this. And the question is, why do we care about issues like this? What is the underlying fundamental problem with leaving our entire food supply and our food chain in the hands of a few big companies? Well, one of them has to be the question of what is happening to our bodies. If we are what we eat, then what does it mean that so much of our food is coming from these same few well-connected elitist corporations and that we're all supposed to just sit down, shut up, and shovel the food into our mouths and smile as we do so? Well, of course, there are all sorts of implications that can play out in all sorts of different ways. So here's a story that may or may not be related. I'll let you decide for yourselves. But it is a worrying story no matter how you slice it. It comes from France24.com. It just came out the other day. French sperm count falls by a third. This story says, quote, French men are not as fertile as they used to be, according to a new study, which reports that the sperm count in the average Frenchman's semen has fallen by nearly a third over a 16-year period. Frenchmen are not as fertile as they used to be, according to a new study, and not only are they producing less semen, but the sperm is of lower quality at that. Researchers found that the sperm count in Frenchmen fell by nearly a third between 1989 and 2005, at a rate of about 1.9% a year. The study published in the Oxford Journal Human Reproduction tested semen samples from more than 26,000 men across the country. The article goes on from there to give more of the facts and and figures behind this, including the fact that the average 35-year-old French male uh, has now dropped from producing 73.6 million spermatozoa per milliliter of semen to 49.9 million, which again is a drop of about 33%. That is a staggering figure to happen in a 16-year period, and... I don't know what planet you could possibly be living on where you would not count that as a crisis of severe proportions for the future of the human race itself. And yet, how many people are talking about this? Of course, this is not just in France. When you go and you start looking through the numbers, there are similar numbers happening all across Europe, all across North America, in other countries besides. And don't take my word for that. Please go up and take a look at some of the sources. I've talked about this before on the podcast, and I've got some sources up there on CorbettReport.com. But again, please go out and research this. And when you start seeing that these sperm figures are falling all across the developed world at the same time to in in crisis proportions and then you wonder why no one's talking about this crisis this isn't on anyone's agenda you don't see environmental groups and activists rallying to try to uh, to save the human species itself from uh, the the extinction that we seem to be facing with these plummeting fertility levels why is that oh it's because killing off humans is supposed to be a good thing. If we all just die, that'll solve the overpopulation crisis, which is threatening all of us. 
And just as a side note, of course, the overpopulation crisis itself is a myth that's perpetuated by lies and misunderstandings. And I've talked about that at length on the podcast before, so I hope people will take a look at such uh, episodes of my podcast as the underpopulation crisis to get some of the facts and figures on that. But let's put it safely in the category of something that has been scientifically established now. Sperm levels and fertility rates across the developed world are plummeting at crisis levels. This is happening for some sort of reason. There is some cause behind this. And the fact that so few people are even interested in looking at this issue, let alone questioning why this is happening, shows that this is part of a coordinated agenda. And once again, people can say, oh, it's just something that's happening. It's just it's just random. But isn't it funny that decades ago you had people like the uh, descendants of Charles Darwin and Francis Galton, Charles Galton Darwin, writing about how great it would be, how wonderful if we could if we could just stop, uh, it, we could just lower fertility levels, if we could just make sure less boys were being born, if we could just, just sort of dumb down the population. And uh, you had Bertrand Russell talking about vaccines and and foods and other things being used to control the population. And lo and behold, decades later, we find all of this happening. And, oh, yes, there's those estrogen-mimicking hormone disruptors that are being put in the plastics and BPA and all of this that has been fed to the population for decades. But but again, it's all just random stuff that's just happening willy-nilly. Right. And of course, there are people who, even when they are faced with this information, will defend it and will say that it's great that it's happening. We need fewer people on this planet. If you believe that, then you go out and get your vasectomy done. You get your tubes tied. Great. Good for you. I don't care. But don't force this on anyone else. And that's the situation we're facing right now. More news and information after this break. The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Over 90 minutes of never before seen interviews and classic video reports, including. These major actors, a handful of financial institutions, are picking up uh, the real economy at rock bottom prices. Very simply speaking, I think uh, there can't be any justifiable wars. Well, and I think this is this is all basically also a big hat tip to the work that Project Censor does. And that is one of those things that, again, is always a real, a, a big effective tool in the info war is that sort of in one link you could send in that you could send that out and have someone read that list and just go, oh, my God, I didn't know these things. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. And uh, I, I didn't like what I saw from an emotional standpoint and from a, a scientific standpoint, from just the physics of watching the pulverization of these buildings. Well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers. The absolute contradiction of that. I've always considered myself to be politically motivated and politically interested, but it wasn't something that I think defined my life in, in the way that it does now. The Corbett Report, 2009 Video Archive. Available now on DVD. 
Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Tonight, we are going over some news headlines, and the phone lines are open, 1-800-313-9443. We're also going over some listener suggestions and going over some listener feedback and correspondence. And I want to address an email that I received uh, just earlier today from... Gwen in Germany, and Gwen is a someone who has been a supporter of the website for, uh, I think, almost since the beginning, and has been uh, someone who is co- I've corresponded with for years now. I truly do appreciate her opinions and all the work that she does behind the scenes, including checking the links on basically every post that I make to make sure they're not broken or, or malformed, and uh, generally there are mistakes, so I'm gen- genuinely deeply indebted to her for all the help that she's done over the years helping me on my uh, on my own mistakes. So uh, I wanted to address an email that she sent, actually, as feedback to our recent conversation with Laurette Lynn here on the broadcast, talking about Stay Out of School, Don't Do Drugs, Stay Out of School, her book, which is available at laurettelynn.com, talking about the idea of homeschooling, etc., and I know that it's a, it can be a controversial uh, subject for a lot of uh, for a lot of reasons, and it, it does affect people in a lot of different ways. A lot of people come to it from different perspectives. So I wanted to put her perspective out on the table, where uh, basically she's saying that she grew up in the German public education system, and she she outlined some of the problems with that. For example, of course, the German government gets to set, set the curriculum and teach about, for example, global warming or whatever else without teaching the uh, the other side of the issues, but. She says, at the same time, I cannot imagine that my parents or any other parent I know could have provided me with the broad range of knowledge that I did receive from the public education system. I mean, it's all nice and well that parents like Lorette Lynn tried to educate their uh, their children, but I still have doubts that she could compete in every single subject with the teachers who taught me. And Gwen goes on in some great degree of detail about some of the, the, the problems that she has with this idea. And I do appreciate that feedback. I do understand a lot of people have, have the similar problems and, and questions about homeschooling. And I'm not here to, to decide for anyone what they would do with their own children. Of course not. But, uh, but I, I, I understand this, this criticism, but I think it, it, to do justice to the idea of homeschooling, I think that sometimes we can see the, that there is something outside of the box without really stepping outside of the box. And I'm just speaking from my own perspective here. Of course, I'm not speaking for Lorette or any other parents, but I am speaking from my own perspective. I think the idea of homeschooling to me is not simply to take the idea of school with a curriculum and tests and a teacher-student relationship, etc., and to move that particular box into the home so that you have a parent teaching your children in the same in the same manner i think it's a more fundamental revision of the idea of schooling of the idea of education itself what education is and what it can be taken a, a, apart from that context the confines of the education system as it has existed for the last 100 150 years under that prussian model that's spread across the globe and i think for example there are a couple of different ways that I would respond to this this type of idea. First of all, I, I don't think that necessarily the parent has to be in that role of teacher. And this can, in some way, in some ways, this depends on the, your specific locality because there are different requirements under different laws in different states and different countries uh, about what you can and 
can't do supposedly in terms of homeschooling, whether your child still has to pass certain standardized tests or, or you still have to conform to a certain curriculum. So it depends on your own locality, what, what the laws and regulations are and, and how you want to choose to abide by them. But, uh, but I think there is, there are ideas that go completely apart from what the schooling system is about. And people might want to turn back to an interview that I did quite a long time ago uh, with a person whose name slips my mind. I'll get that for you later in the broadcast. I'll put it in the show notes. But we did a, a talk about unschooling, and he talked about how his children would set their own stud course of study and set their own research projects. And basically his role as a parent was to more to supervise what they were doing, more to, to be there as the person that they they were interacting with in the course of their own discovery. But at the same time, he was learning about things through his children. And I think the example he gave was that his eight or nine-year-old boy was very interested in carnivorous plants. So he was researching everything there is to know about Venus flytraps and the like. And of course, the parent in that case doesn't know everything there is to know about that 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 item, that, uh, that particular field of study, but the parent then becomes part of the process of, of helping the student to learn how to discover the information and what to do with it, how to process it. It doesn't necessarily have to take that student-teacher relationship model and just apply that to the parent and the child. The child can be an active part in forming their own education curriculum. And this is an idea that I have a lot of different ideas about. And uh, one other thing that I would point to is that Again, I can look back to my own experience in high school math class solving quadratic equations, which is something that I've never done in the last 15 years of my life. And if I was confronted with that problem right now, I wouldn't remember how to do it. I would, the first thing I would do is I would turn to a book or I would turn to the internet to go over the process. How do I do this again? And I would teach myself. And in that regard, I think the parent can take that kind of role in the home education system where the child is 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 motivated to learn this or that particular piece of information. It doesn't mean that the parent necessarily knows that. It means that you both discover, you can teach your child how to learn and how to get that information from other sources. And as someone who was a teacher in the public education system here in Japan for several years, I can tell you that often teachers behind the scenes are using the answer keys to grade their students' homeworks. It's not because the teachers necessarily do know all the answers. It's because they have the answer keys. So teaching is not necessarily the way we always think of it. There's a lot more to be said on this issue, and we will explore it further in future episodes. But right now, we're up against a break. Let's take a short breather. All right, friends, welcome back. We are here on Corbett Report Radio tonight. We are going over some news and headlines and suggestions from listeners who have sent in their own tips through the CorbettReport.com contact form. And again, we have tons of information to get through tonight, so let's continue through it. Next, let's turn to, again, closer to home for me here in Japan. And I just wanted to share this article with you guys out there. I think it's interesting um, and kind of sad in a lot of ways, but at least a very telling description of the voting process in so many of our developed Western countries these days. And this comes from the Japan Times of December 6, 2012. They have an article, The Undecided to Play Key Role in Poll, which is one of those very revealing headlines and uh, interesting in and of itself. But basically, this article is talking about the national elections that are going to be taking place here 
in Japan on December 16th as people go to the polls yet again. And if, uh, if you are as confused as most of the people here about who's in power right now and what's going on, well, there's good reason to be because as people, I think, famously know, the uh, Japanese electoral system is a bit of a farce and uh, there's a new prime minister every every year or two at most here. So it is a bit of a revolving door and it does make us somewhat of a mockery of the whole election process. But uh, again, it's just something that continues happening again and again and again. And I won't get into the specifics of the D- Democratic Party of Japan versus the Lim- Liberal Democratic Party. It is interesting and I think there is a lot at play in this election. So perhaps I'll go over it in more detail next week. But I just wanted to point out in this particular article, which again will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com, they talk basically about uh, the people who are trying to decide how to vote in this election, and it's a yet another case, maybe you guys in the in the States and elsewhere around the world can relate to this, of people being sick of what's uh, the people who are in power and wanting to vote them out, but not knowing if there's any real alternative to vote for that actually matches what they want. And so it gives one example of someone here who's saying that uh, the thing is, there isn't a party that seems to meet with all of my views, says one of these voters that they're pol- they're talking about in this article. I'm for Japan joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, well, and I think we should stop relying on nuclear power, and I don't like the idea of revising the Constitution. I really don't know yet. And it's just another sad example of how, again and again, time and time again, all around the world in these elected representative democracies, where people think that they're voting into power, the alpha leaders who will tell people what to do, and thinking that somehow pulling the right lever for the right candidate will get that right magic person into the the position of power that will do everything that you want, instead of questioning the fundamental system itself of having those positions of power and giving them to these so-called representatives to do whatever they want with it. So unfortunately, we are still very, very far away from even beginning to pierce people's statist bubbles and to get them to question the idea of going to the polls every few years to pull a lever and vote a candidate into power and not questioning what that power is or why it needs to exist at all. But again, I guess that's just my voluntarist uh, flights of fancies getting ahead of me. I think this is a generational project to try to pierce that statist bubble and to get people thinking in anti-statist ways. And I will do my part to contribute towards that thinking, little bit by little bit, chipping away at people's dogmatic slumbers. But moving on to Australia, again, uh, from a listener in Australia who sent in this interesting little anecdote. In fact, from Leon Petard of uh, the uh, uh, the website whose name escapes me at the moment. <laughs> but again, I'll link that up in the show notes. Uh, Leon Petard, who was, of course, a previous guest on this uh, broadcast, he sends in this little tidbit from theaustralian.com.au. There will be no rats in the house, media told. And this says, quote, newspapers and TV stations have been banned from digitally altering images of MPs under new media rules announced yesterday. Regulations for media in Parliament House state photographs of parliamentary proceedings and associated captions and editorial comment must be used only for the purposes of fair and accurate reports of proceedings, not be digitally manipulated. It comes after the Daily Telegraph ran a controversial page one image depicting former speaker and serial political defector Peter Slipper as a rat in November of last year. 
At the time, Sergeant-at-Arms Robin McClelland wrote to editor Paul Whitaker, vowing to refer the matter to Parliament's media review and threatening sanctions, stating that pictures taken in Parliament could not be used for satire or ridicule. For the first time, the media rules also apply to MPs, including the ban on digital alterations. It means Shadow Treasurer Joe Hockey could be unable to repeat his 2011 stunt of carrying around a cardboard cutout of former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and posting images online. So it goes on from there, but yes, basically, once again, the gods in government are attempting to say that, oh, you, you can't do things like actually print our images and alter them. You can't, you can't have satire. You can't make fun of us. We're the gods. We, we rule over you people. We can make whatever laws we want, including laws that prevent your free speech. And when it comes to talking about us. So, uh, so again, uh, it's not really surprising for people who are familiar with basically the British parliamentary system and the types of draconian rules that they seek to impose on media generally. And uh, people in Britain, I'm sure, can relate to this as even uh, clips of, even unaltered clips of proceedings in Parliament cannot be aired on any British programming that is not serious, you know, documentary style fare. So uh, it can't be used for satirical purposes, etc. You couldn't even have a daily show in Britain showing clips of the Parliament and, and commenting on it because that would not be allowed under British rules and Australia going the way of the Brits on this one. So uh, just a ridiculous state of affairs and it just goes to show once again how far people around the world really are from the understanding of what it means to have freedom and why that principle is so important. Moving along to uh, to Canada now, let's cast our gaze up there, up north of the border, to thestar.com, where they are reporting West End Toronto residents shocked by local uranium facility. Quote, West End residents are looking for answers after they discovered that an unassuming building on Lansdowne Avenue is actually a nuclear facility licensed to produce nearly 2,000 tons of radioactive uranium dioxide pellets each year. The General, Electric, the General Electric Hitachi plant has been processing natural uranium powder into centimeter-long pellets that are assembled into fuel bundles elsewhere for Canada's nuclear reactors since 1965. The shocking thing is that they can be there for so long and keep things so quiet, said area resident Don Withers. GE Canada spokeswoman Kim Warburton said the plant handles only natural uranium, which is not dangerous compared to its enriched counterpart. She said the company's sign is clearly visible. GE Hitachi is a nuclear business. It's on our website. End quote. And one wonders if it was on their website back in 1965 when the facility first opened. But regardless, I suppose they do in a way have a certain point that... It doesn't mean that it's necessarily their fault that residents didn't know what was happening there because they were making no secret of it. They were just weren't openly advertising the fact of what they were doing. And anyone who actually knew what GE Hitachi was or what they were operating would have known that this was a uranium processing facility. But again, it came from actually an activist who, uh, who came from outside of the, the community to tell, tell the local residents there, by the way, this is a uranium processing facility. Did you know that? And now people are, are quite uh, shocked by this and wondering how they didn't know about it for 40 years. It just goes to show that sometimes people do not know what is happening literally in their own backyards because they just don't have 
I guess, the curiosity or the wherewithal to actually look into things like, hey, what is that plant? What does it actually do? And it is a good reminder of just how much information is actually out there. Again, the corporate report itself operates on the source, on the principle of open source intelligence, which is increasingly what intelligence agencies around the world rely on. There is so much information that is freely and openly available that it in fact makes such an inundation of news and information that people can't sort through it all and big open secrets can exist literally in people's backyards like hey this is a uranium processing facility did you know that all of this uranium was being processed there each year 2,000 tons of uranium dioxide pellets being processed there each year Anyway, this article goes on to say that the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission actually uh, ranks this as a medium-risk nuclear facility because of the sheer volume of uranium that's processed there each year. And again, all of this happening completely under the noses of the residents, out in plain sight, which is sometimes the best place to hide a secret. Speaking of hiding a secret in plain sight, let's turn our attention completely to the other side of the world, and let's look at the latest hype about the Syria chemical weapons false flag setup is what I basically think this is, but let's take a look at some of the facts. And we can turn to a source like Yahoo News or NBC News or any of the other MSM sources that have been reporting on this lately that, uh, quote, Syria loads chemical weapons into bombs awaiting attack order from Assad. And this article from Yahoo News goes on to say, U.S. officials say the Syrian military has loaded active chemical weapons into bombs and is awaiting a final order from embattled President Bashar Assad to use the deadly weapons against its own people. NBC News reports that on Wednesday, the Syrian military loaded sarin gas into aerial bombs that could be deployed from dozens of aircraft. The last large-scale use of sarin was in 1988, when former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein's forces killed 5,000 Kurds in a single attack. U.S. officials, however, told NBC that the sarin bombs had not yet been loaded onto planes, but added if Assad gives the final order, there's little the outside world can do to stop it. End quote. You can go on and continue reading that corporate media pablum if you so desire, if you have that particular masochistic tendency. Uh, I uh, personally think this is just the most flagrant bunkum that we've seen come along since the 2003, uh, 2002, 2003 Iraq weapons of mass destruction scam that the world was led along by with the active complicity of the mainstream media at that time. And it is absolutely based on the same level of information that that was. I go into this in more detail in my uh, in my International Forecaster editorial that will be coming out tomorrow in the International Forecaster. Also, of course, that's part of my Corbett Report subscriber weekly newsletter. So if you are subscribed to the Corbett Report newsletter, you will get that in your e- email inbox tomorrow. And uh, I go into more depth about the, the sarin gas attack, the mustard gas, the VX gas attack that, that happened in Halabja in 1988 uh, under President Hussein but also talking about this latest false flag setup for Syria, where uh, in this article, for example, they don't bother to quote the Syrian foreign minister who is saying, we reiterate for the 10th, the 100th, the 1,000th time, we have no intention of ever using chemical weapons against our own citizens. We are not going to do this. 
Contrast that to Hussein, who back in 1988 was openly saying he was going to use chemical weapons against civilians. He openly admitted that. They openly did it. It it wasn't a secret to anyone. So there's quite a difference between comparing Halabja to what's supposedly about to take place in Syria. And when you go and follow these stories back to their sources, you find it sources back to unnamed U.S. officials who are telling you, asking you to believe them when they say, oh, trust us. Yes, they're loading the chemical weapons. They're getting them ready. All it will take is Assad's final order, as if that order is even being contemplated. And this sounds like a setup to something, and I very much fear what that something may be. And unfortunately, we already have uh, an indication of what that may be from Land Destroyer Report, of course, the excellent work of Tony Cardellucci, who is uh, documenting this very well in his latest article, U.S.-NATO-GCC-backed terrorists preparing chemical attack, question mark. And this talks about a video that has just surfaced online, a very disturbing video, showing uh, basically some chemicals that are lined up in a lab-type facility. And this is apparently being put out by some group calling itself the Almighty Wind Brigade, which I assume sounds somewhat more intimidating in Arabic. Um, And basically they're talking about how this video shows them actually killing some of the rabbits with what appears to be a nerve agent of some kind and basically saying, um, you saw what happened, this will be your fate, you infidel Alawites. I swear by Allah to make you die like these rabbits one minute only after you inhale the gas. So basically this is an on-record video of something that at least is being claimed to be a, a chemical weapons kind of demonstration by some group that is clearly an insurgent group in Syria that is saying they are going to use it against Syrian civilians. Meanwhile, the Syrian government is being set up to be blamed for any chemical weapons attack that happens. Can you smell the false flag set up when you, when you, when you smell it? Um, and that's the question here. It is a setup in every way so that whenever chemical weapons are used in Syria, it's automatically going to be blamed on Syria and the Syrian government without any suggestion that it could actually be coming from the rebel insurgents, the terrorists who have infested that country and who are openly threatening to use chemical weapons against Syrian civilians. So again, I think we have to do some more hard research into what's really going on with this chemical weapons setup. And at least one way that we can approach this is to take a look at this admission that finally came out from the New York Times uh, about 18 months too late, but there you go. Uh, They had this article up the other day. U.S.-approved arms for Libya rebels fell into jihadists' hands. And it's basically talking about how, oh yeah, you know that Libyan bombing the hell out of Libya thing we did last year where we said it was going to be for the betterment of the world and everybody and Libyans will be all behind it and it'll be Shangri-La after the NATO love bombs rain down on everyone. Oh yeah, well, during that destabilization, it just so happens that uh, some of the weapons that we were sending to the Libyan rebels somehow managed to fall into the hands of jihadists as if, like, coming down from heaven, it just they just fell into their laps magically. As if there was any difference between the Libyan rebels and the jihadists. They were one and the same. They were from the beginning. That's even been admitted by uh, the, the former CIA director and others. So there's no real controversy there. They knew they were arming the jihadists from the beginning. And now the paper of record is finally getting a lot around to reporting on it as if it was all some big accident. So this is the exact type of thing we're talking about. They destabilize Libya. The jihadists who they were supporting get their hands on all of the chemical weapons and 
and other weapons, the, the conventional weapons that were in the hands of the Libyan government, and suddenly they're being transported up to Syria. And there is good reason to think that that's what the real Benghazi gate was really about, and why there was such a CIA infestation in Benghazi at that time. Part of it was that they were funneling weapons from Libya to Syria, and the CIA was part of that nexus that was making that happen. There was an attack against the CIA, and we all know what happened from there. So there's a lot going on to this story, but at the very least, the take-home point is that when a chemical, if a chemical weapon attack happens in Syria, and let's hope it does not, because it is truly a gruesome, horrifying way to die. We do not wish this on anyone. But if such an attack happens and they immediately start blaming Assad, I think we have to take a look at the possibility that those chemical weapons originated elsewhere and were used by someone else. We see the setup to the false flag already taking place, and we have to be smart about what is really at stake here, because I think the Syrian government knows that it would be suicide for them to use chemical weapons against the jihadists in their country, even if they wanted to, which they say they don't, because it would start the very invasion of their country that they've been working for the past two years to avoid. So either Assad is literally a suicidal madman, totally insane, or we can take him at face value that he doesn't want to use those chemical weapons against his own civilians. I'll let you decide, but let's take a short break and we'll be back to finish things up right after this. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Just to follow up with what I was saying earlier, of course, Leon Petard of Fair Dinkum Radio. So uh, uh, my apologies to Leon for forgetting that on the spur of the moment. FairDinkumRadio.com, of course, and he was the one who sent in that uh, that article from the Australian.com.au. But moving right along, let's uh, just wrap up tonight with a couple of issues on the smart grid spy grid, which is unfortunately going into place not only in America but around the world. And there has been another article shedding light on this problem from Mercola.com, which is a pretty big site, so it is getting a lot of attention right now. That article is called Smart Grid Funding Misspent on Obsolete Technologies, Says New Report. And this is a uh, a, a very, very detailed write-up on the smart grid and what the problems with it are. It goes into a lot of detail, so I'll leave it to you guys out there to explore this article for yourself. It even includes a clip from Take Back Your Power, the uh, documentary film that we were talking to Josh Del Sol about on this broadcast a a few months ago. So uh, very, very thorough. And it also includes a video that's pretty interesting in and of itself that I'd like to just play a little clip of. It's ex-CI director James Woolsey himself calling the smart grid a stupid idea. Saying also on a federal level, there is no one in charge of cybersecurity policy and defense. No one in charge of security for the grid, mm-hmm. whether it's cyber or transformers or, or whatever. Uh, you can search forever through the federal code to, to try to find who that uh, person uh, might be. And you think it should be the president? Well, I think it's, there's a very good reason for it perhaps to be the chairman of, the, of FERC 
or uh, but to try out to see what would work. I, I think having the Defense Department work with the local utility is uh, is the best. What what they're doing now, they're constructing what they call a smart grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to make it easier for you and me to call our homes on our cell phone and turn down our air conditioning on a hot afternoon if we're not there. Great. But that may well mean that a hacker in Shanghai uh, with his cell phone uh, can do the same thing uh, or worse. And a, a so-called smart grid that is as vulnerable as what we've got is not smart at all. It's a really, really stupid grid. Well, it is refreshing to hear uh, an ex-CIA director talking about some of the problems with the smart grid. Of course, the problem is the way the the problem is framed. And in this case, it means, oh, it's not secure enough. What we need is more government and we need more officials and appointees to have more backdoor access to to be able to, to make sure that the smart grid functions properly. So it's a criticism, but it's not the kind of criticism we're necessarily looking for. But at the very least, hopefully it'll wake a few more of the sleepers out of their sleep their dogmatic slumbers and begin questioning what this smart grid is and why it's being used and uh, maybe hit people with a one-two punch, not only that clip, but also then show them the CIA David Petraeus, uh, the former director David Petraeus, saying how it'll be great. Everyone can be spied on by the CIA through their toasters and their fridges. It'll be a wonderful new, brave new world for the CIA. Um, and finally tonight, I just want to draw people's attention to an RT article and interview they did recently with NSA wh- wh- whistleblower William Binney, talking about how everyone in U.S. is under virtual surveillance, talking about the Petraeus story and what that reveals about what the FBI can do to access people's emails. It talks about the NARIS device and other things. Not a lot of new information in this uh, interview that we didn't know before, but this refreshing thing is I saw this on the front page of YouTube.com for a few days, so it's uh, getting a lot of widespread attention, which is good. Again, we are winning gradually, little by little, the hearts and minds of the general public who are waking up to the reality, the nightmare that we're all facing, but we can face it together and we can overcome these problems together. On that note, we're fresh out of time, so that's it for me for this week, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week here on Corbett Report Radio. Until then, thank you for listening, and take care. <laughs>